0: Uh, good evening, uh, my name is Trent Hotella and I'm the head of the Czech Centre, it's a pleasure to welcome uh, all of you here this evening. We still have a few more people on, on the way, nevertheless I think we're gonna kick off with my very brief uh, introductions of, uh, of the series. So after the last year, I know that perhaps some of you might have joined us already last year, so after the successful launch of the Women in Focus series last uh, year uh, about the inspirational uh, women personalities uh, from various fields. I think last year we covered architecture, art, uh, sport, uh, ballet. So I'm very pleased that we have decided to, uh, to continue with the series also uh, in this year in this year Czech Center's uh, programming. And I am truly excited that this year uh, LineUp will bring uh, guests with very enriching and inspirational, professional, uh, as well as personal experiences. And this evening we will explore with our guest uh, Ivana uh, Kotosova uh, the world of journalism and international news uh, reporting. So let me briefly introduce Ivana. Uh, she's a senior producer at the CNN International, uh, covering international news, uh, war conflicts, and human rights, focusing on Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Uh, most recently, Ivana traveled to Israel, and the West Bank, to report on the October 7 terror attack by Hamas and the subsequent uh, Grant invasion by Israel Defense Forces in Gaza. And also in 2022 Ivana uh, covered uh, the Russian invasion uh, in Ukraine and the Battle of, of, of Kyiv and for her CNN uh, team reporting she was uh, awarded, among others, a DuPont Columbia award, a foreign press association award and an Emmy. So uh, let me just say that she's also a graduate of the Columbia University uh, in New York, uh, majoring in journalism and LSE uh, here in London uh, in government affairs. And my, I might also add that Ivana is a vivid runner, I might say, and a supporter of Zatopek charity Fund, which we are organizing on annual basis here in the Czech centre. So this evening will be divided in three different parts. Uh, We will start with the opening remarks by Ivana. The second uh, part will be followed by a dialogue uh, discussion with Ivan uh, Kitka. Uh, Ivan, he is a freelance uh, journalist who regularly contributes to British and and Czech uh, media. And the third part will be open open for Q&A as you so have your uh, questions uh, ready. So with that, I am very pleased to welcome Ivana here.
1: Um. Thank you very much, Derek. Um I have to say I'm quite disturbed by the size of my head. <laughs> so uh, I have to say I'm quite humbled by the idea that um, people would come and listen to me speak. Um, so thank you very much for coming. If you came for the free drinks, um, that's fine too. (laughs) In fact, you might actually enjoy this a bit more if you have one, I think they're behind the corner. Um, So please, uh, do not hesitate to drink. In fact, I agreed to do this talk while drinking upstairs at the Christmas party of the Czech Embassy, so it would be a nice continuation of the theme. Um, Thank you for that um, introduction. I almost didn't recognise myself, it sounded quite dull. Um, I will talk a little bit about uh, myself and how I got into journalism. That part of the talk is going to be very short. <laughs> and then um, I'm going to talk about some of the stories that I have had the privilege to do um, and report on. Um, I've picked uh, some that I find interesting, some that I think are quite important, and also a couple that I'm simply just very proud of having done. So, um, how I got into journalism. I am afraid I'm one of those very boring people who sort of always knew what they wanted to do. I think I was about 14, 15 when I decided I wanted to be a journalist. The reason was I was very interested in in news and international affairs. I was um, a fairly good writer in, in Czech, so it seemed like a good idea. I also really liked telling people things they didn't know, uh, so I guess you can call me a bit of a gossip girl. Maybe you know, being someone very annoying, saying, "But did you know that?" Um, but you know, it seemed like a, a, a good, uh, good choice. Um, I, however, encountered a major issue, which was I had absolutely no idea how to do that. I didn't know anyone who was doing anything remotely uh, connected to journalism or anything in that field. Um m- most people in my family are um, in the fields of natural sciences. Both of my parents are mathematicians. so when I went to them or when I first told them I wanted to be a journalist, uh, my mom looked at me slightly alarmed and said something like, "But don't you want to do something real?" Uh, but um, no, so, so, so it, it just looked, it just seemed to me as this pie in the sky, idea that I'd really like to be a journalist, but it's not going to happen because it's it's crazy. The Czech media market is very small. There's a couple of newspapers, uh, the Czech TV, um, which, you know, the, the, the best job at the Czech TV at that time was taken by Ivan. <laughs> so I was like, eh, I can't do that. Um, but I, I would really like to be in a position to tell you that uh, my career today is a result of hard work and years of sacrifices, but I think that would be incredibly dishonest because I've actually been just very, very lucky in very many ways. So my my first major luck was uh, is actually my parents. Uh, my parents who um, once they sort of realized that I I was serious about this journalism thing they uh, supported me all the way through and, and were extremely supportive and I have to say I think that is actually a sign of, of major love, uh, parental love, when you support your children uh, in their choices, even though, even though the choices do not really align with what you thought they would do, because my parents really thought you know, I have two sisters. they I, I believe they thought at least one of us is going to be mathematician didn't happen, but they always supported us in whatever we decided to do. So you know that is amazing. So that is my my major luck and, and privilege because they made it possible for me to go into journalism. and as I said, I uh, didn't know anything about how to how to do it. It seemed completely impossible, and this is where another luck came uh, in my way. When I was in high school, I had a teacher who was quite a character. I have many funny stories about him, which I can tell you later, when we drink the lovely wine that's served outside. But one thing he did was that when I had a conversation with him about what I want to do, and I said, well, I'd like to be a journalist, but I don't think it's possible, he just looked at me and said, why not? And I think that was the moment when I started to think, well, actually, why not? And I made a plan and the plan was I'm going to study journalism, how to get to journalism and, uh, and take it from there. And my parents uh, were very supportive of that and, and it so happened that I decided to come and study in England and again they were extremely helpful and extremely supportive. So I studied journalism in England, my first year was hard, um, I think I was a bit lonely, maybe. Maybe a bit homesick. I think I didn't. I don't know if I can see some students here. You know, I didn't quite um, fit in the whole freshers week, let's drink 20 cello shots and dress like a penguin and go around. See, I just, it just, I, I, it wasn't, the, the first year was hard. I, I did well in school, but, but I didn't quite feel like I fit in. So, after my first year I did internship in the Czech Republic and that internship turned into a job that I took and I took a gap year. And again, massively lucky moment, I, that, that job was my first job in journalism and it was in a Czech newspaper called mm-hmm. Hospodarské Noviny. And at that time, that particular time, that newsroom was absolutely bursting with talent. So I. You know, some of the best journalists in the Czech Republic who were at their very best at that time were working in the paper and I had the privilege to work with them. <laughs> Nevertheless, I decided I wanted to go back to university. I went back, I studied a bit more, um, I, as was said, I went to New York to do a graduate school in journalism at Columbia, and I went to London School of Economics to do a degree in European politics. and in that last year, oh, there's, a, there's a laugh, <laughs> it was before Brexit. It was so funny because actually in most of our seminars, Brexit was discussed as this completely, the, the, the concept of it was just so surreal. <laughs> so this was 2011, 2012. Well, we know what happened. But um, in that last year at LSE, I was applying for all these jobs and I just kept getting rejected from every single one of them. And you know sometimes I didn't hear at all, which is not great. Sometimes I got a phone call saying, you were amazing, you were so great, we loved you, but someone else was better, so you were the runner up. So I applied uh, at the end for 33 jobs and was rejected from every single one of them. And then I applied for an internship at CNN, and uh, I got a phone call saying, you were amazing, we loved you, but there was someone else we liked more, so you we were the runner-up. And here comes the the plot twist, the, the again the luck, the lucky moment. Uh, that person got a job in the Guardian, so didn't take the internship. So it went to me, and you know the rest is history. I've been there for 11 years, 12, coming 12. Um, so uh, to sum this all up, uh, I think my main career advice for any uh, future journalist here in the audience is. Uh, Make sure you pick the right parents, <laughs> be lucky and don't give up. So that's, that's about it. Now, much more interesting are, uh, I want to show you some stories that I've done um, while at CNN. Um, this works. Yes. This, I picked this assignment uh, because it was one of my first uh, big assignments in terms of going to a place Abroad, there was in a massive crisis, and and I just I landed there at a time when it was all unfolding, and the assignment was fine stories, and it was in this assignment during the Greek crisis um, when I realized the sort of journalism I wanted to do, that the sort of reporting I was most interested in, which is looking at how these big crises. That, geopolitical crisis, economic crisis, uh, big systemic changes and big policy decisions, how they impact people, normal people. So, the Eurozone crisis was largely unfolding in Brussels. Um, I don't know if you remember you know, Yanis uh, Varoufakis uh, negotiating with Angela Merkel, all these summits that just went on and on and on, then there was a referendum. And I, I was in Greece, and I was just trying to make sense of what that crisis looks like on the ground. So I did a story about homeless uh, homeless people uh, in Athens, which really stuck with me, because we met, uh, there was a, one person, one man, um, who used to be a professor at a university in Athens, and he lost his job in one of the cuts, one of the, you know, there a series of... Public um, public sector cuts. He lost his job as a result of that, and then two years later, you know, through gradual descent, he ended up being homeless in Athens. And I remember the social worker who is on that picture was telling me how. By the way, that is not the professor. That is a, another person. She was telling me that they normally they know who these people are because they tend to stick to certain locations and they come and visit them every now and then. And asked them what they need, do you need medication, do you need water, do you need extra layers and he said I, I, I really need some books, can you please give me some books because I really miss reading and I it was just you know that, that story was just to me such a good illustration of what that Eurozone crisis did to people and how the, the public life in, in Greece changed uh, because of that. So that was Greece um next um I was lucky enough to be able to take part in CNN's project called as equals which is a long-running project that is focused on women's rights and and gender inequality and I went to uh, Tanzania to do two stories one of them was a story about a law that they had in Tanzania which, um, essentially meant that if a girl who is in school gets pregnant she gets kicked out and cannot come back after giving birth and and it didn't matter whether the pregnancy was a result of a relationship or whether it was a child bride situation or whether it was a result of a rape uh, whatever happened if you get pregnant you're done um, so we did this story about girls in different situations who who had that, Experience and um, you know I don't want to say that our story caused the law to change because that's not true. But but definitely the law eventually did change, and I think the fact that media, including us, paid attention to it, hopefully, helped it a little bit. Another story which I'm extremely proud of uh, was a story about also in <coughs> Tanzania uh, about period poverty. We uh, did a big report about uh, girls who don't have access to sanitary products. I'm checking the time just to see, I'm not running fast. Um, and, and they're missing on school, they don't go to school when they're on their period. And uh, to illustrate the impact of that, we built a interactive calculator where people could put in, um, you know, how long their period takes or how often they are on their period, and it calculated how much time of their life they would miss if they didn't have um, access to, uh, to sanitary products. There was an option of, I'm a man, I have no clue, give me the average, and it, it gave you the average. But uh, Why I'm so proud about it, because on that day, CNN website, which is the biggest news website in the world, as we like to say, let the main story was a story about periods, and I just thought amazing. Um, unfortunately, not much has changed uh, since then. Um, pandemic, a uh, story that was obviously the biggest story of uh, in the world at that time. Again, um, I tried to um, you know th- th- with stories like this, it, what often often happens is they are so big. And the numbers of people impacted are so huge that, that it starts being sort of this concept that, that we cannot understand. And I think this is true with the pandemic. It's true with uh, any kind of uh, earthquake or natural disaster that has high casualty uh, numbers. It's true with any war, any conflict. Uh, we start thinking about people as numbers and we lose the touch. So it was important to me to do stories Again, about people. Um, what was strange about this story was that we all lived it, right? Normally, when I cover a story, I'm an outside observer. Um, you know, we we get go somewhere where things are happening to other people, and we speak to the other people and we tell their stories. With the pandemic, we were reporting on lockdown, and we were in lockdown. We were reporting on not being able to get vaccination. We were. Not able to get vaccination and all these all these things. Uh, I think that was a very interesting experience for all of us journalists um, because you know we had to deal with the story as it was unfolding while also reporting on it. Uh, climate um, climate crisis definitely the biggest story of our lifetime. Uh, if we don't do something about this, there is not going to be much future. So uh, this was a story um, that we did um, sort of towards the first, towards the end of the first year of the pandemic, and we wanted to look at um, how um, all this public money was floating into the economy. So there was a lot of talk about fiscal stimulus because the the pandemic really crushed the economy. So governments around the world were trying to find ways to encourage growth. And one of one of the ways was there was a lot of investment into projects into infrastructure projects, and unfortunately, a lot of them were into projects that involved fossil fuels. So we did stories about that, um, but we wanted to look at it from slightly different angles. So what we did was we went to four different communities um, which rely on fossil fuels for living. So. Um, we were trying to sort of tell the story from the point of the people who are whose livelihoods depend on fossil fuels, which we all know will have to end if we wanna survive, um, and, and how governments are trying to, you know, either help them transition or are pumping money into the industries to keep them going even though their future is probably limited. It was very interesting um, in reporting, so, you know, I, I'm not explaining it very well, but, you know, we, I care I, I deeply about uh, the climate crisis, and this was one way we tried to um, bring the big topic to, to life, by, by, you know, examining what it does to communities. Another one, extremely cold assignment. <laughs> Uh, went to Iceland um, and reported on this very strange phenomena that they have in Iceland where uh, sea levels are actually dropping. So what what happens is, um, because you have all these glaciers and they are pushing down the ground, if there is warmer weather, these glaciers start melting, they stop pushing down the ground, the ground bounces back. Sea level drops, relative sea level drops. Ships have problems getting into um, into ports. There's a lot of different problems that arise from it. So we went to Iceland and spoke to fishing communities that are having to, you know, completely um, rethink their way of, of of living because they can't do what they've been doing because of climate crisis, but in a very different way than we are used to hearing about climate crisis and sea level change. Um, yeah, this, this, was a, this was a heartbreaking story, and one that I'm extremely proud of doing. Um, it, it's a story of postpartum depression, which is uh, a, a very sort of ignored condition that affects a large number of women. Uh, Pranaya uh, was a mom um, who took her own life and the life of her son because of postpartum depression. I've uh, I've met her husband, uh, who the reason why we found out about the story was actually through running. He uh, to raise awareness and money for a foundation that um, helps people who suffer from postpartum depression he ran the length of britain so he started up in scotland and went all the way down uh to the south um and you know we had the, the story was difficult to report because it's so tragic and so personal so it took a long time to to put it together in a way that we were happy about it but you know if if there is ever a story that um where i felt like it is making some kind of difference it was this one because i received an incredible number of emails afterwards saying you know i recognize this story i'm a husband of someone who suffered or i suffered myself and i didn't want to tell anyone so so uh, yeah um, really really glad that we got to do this story ukraine i think i'm running out of time a little bit but <laughs> please bear with me um ukraine um this was um, 2022. In late 2021, um, we started, you know, being concerned about what is happening in Ukraine. And towards the end of the year, I told my bosses that if if we were going to send someone, I, I'd like to go to Ukraine. Um, so they did send me uh, in mid February. So about 10, 11 days before the invasion and. You know it was a very strange time to be in Ukraine because all of the journalists were coming in. It was impossible to get a flight. It was um, you know we were sort of trying to figure out what's going on. And yet all the Ukrainians seemed completely fine. They you know when you talk to them, they would tell you, well, we've been living in a war since 2014. This is not a new thing for us. Um, of course, at that point we didn't know what's going to happen. So we were sort of waiting what's going to happen every day there was more and more um, threatening language from the Kremlin and then on the 24th of February at about 4 a.m. in the morning President Putin uh, came up on screen and said that he is launching his special military operation which we all know is a war. so um, we were sat in our little workspace in um, in the hotel in Kiev. We listened to the speech, and then about thirty minutes later, we started hearing explosions. And at that point, I think that was the moment where we all realized, okay, this is actually happening. Because until then, no one really knew what was going to happen. Intelligence was coming in, but you know, intelligence can be wrong. I, I I'm not sure whether we. Expected what, what happened, and why I did this story is uh, I wanted to show you how, in the moment of big breaking news, the, the journalism sort of goes back into the very basics. So, we didn't know what's happening, he said something on air, um, but you know, th- there are explosions, um, so we basically just reported what we saw and heard. This is a message I Sent to my colleagues, um, we're hearing bangs. Uh, was my masterstroke of reporting? Uh, great insight in there. Uh, and you know, this this report translates into this. so someone in London took my reporting and and you know, CNN teams hear loud explosions, blasts are being heard, etc. etc. So um, back to basic, Uh, but as I said, uh, very quickly when you report on these big stories they become so big that it's very difficult to pick the human parts of it, so that's why I think CNN is so amazing because, um, and I'm not paid to say it here, (laughs) I actually mean it, because we we go there to these places where the big stuff is happening, but we stay there and we come back in six months and in a year and two years. So um, this was a trip that I did last year around the anniversary, and I wanted to do again something about how uh, the war is impacting uh, normal people, uh, if there is such a thing as normal people and. This was one of the most amazing assignments I ever had because I was travelling around Ukraine speaking to babushkas. If you've ever met Ukrainian babushka, you know there's always pancakes, there's always tea, coffee, they're so welcoming. But these women, so we spoke to all these older women about their lives and you know we had Holocaust survivors uh, who were suddenly under invasion again. We had uh, women who were evacuated from the East in 2014 and then again in 2022. It was just fascinating. Um, another story was the story we did about um, people with intellectual disabilities and how the war impacts them. So, you know, again, vulnerable community that maybe not is not n- naturally visible to the outside world. Um, I'm going to wrap up, so I promise. Israel um again, a horrendous story that very you know it's a a terror and, and horrific story of such proportions that it's it's very difficult to understand the scale of it if you just talk about the numbers. So we tried to um, you know speak to people who were there. Um, and and went through it to kind of humanise it a little bit and and really show what it was like to go through that terrible terrorist attack. And of course then, um, after uh, Israel started responding to uh, the attack, the story largely shifted and the tension is now much more on Gaza. So again, um, these are just some headlines that uh, we've done. Where again, we're trying to make it a little bit more personal because I think the latest death toll that's been reported is 26,000, and it's just such a large number that it's very difficult to imagine what it looks like. Um, And the last story I want to mention is one of the hardest stories I ever did Um, the Prague shooting. Um, I, I was in the Czech Republic when it unfolded, and I, you know. In the past few years I've traveled to places where people are doing horrible things to each other but they never actually happened in my home. This, this was very close to my heart. The school um, is at the center of public life in the Czech Republic. I have many friends who either went there, some of them teach there or have some sort of links. So, reporting on something that really impacts you is just whole another challenge. Uh, we can talk about it later, but um, yeah, I think that's that's probably all I have. So thank you for listening to me.
2: Thank you, Ivana, for for really thrilling and uh, fantastic introduction. I have to say I feel almost guilty stepping in and interrupting you because it was so so fascinating to, to listen to to my former competition. I have to admit. <laughs>
1: I would like to point out that uh, you were the person on screen that I was watching when I was deciding to be a journalist. Oh, so is, um, I remember you reporting life on uh, Charles' divorce. <laughs> 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 that, that, was, that was the first story I remember you doing.
2: Oh, you think yeah. it was not my own divorce. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe we should before Going back to your hotspots and places you visited, you reported on If You go back for a, some time to the topic of this chat, to this talks, the uh, women in focus. Tell us how is it being a woman in a, in a, in a large uh, news organization, big American corporation? Because when I was preparing for this talk, I went through the list of Czech public television, Czech public radio, Foreign correspondents or personalities, there is not a single woman at the moment being brought as a reporter, as a journalist. So, how is it at CNN? (coughs) Um,
1: We we have women. (laughs) In fact, fact, uh, I am so grateful um, and and so um, proud of of CNN and how we women are, what roles we play. Um, so so our chief international correspondent is a woman, our uh, Clarissa Ward, uh, Christiane Amanpour, of course, our uh, chief uh, international anchor. The head of the London newsroom is a woman. Um, I have six bosses um, between me and the CEO and three are women, three are men. So there are women. Um, our CEO is a man and has always been a man. Um, so there is definitely stuff we can improve. But um, you know, I, I think these things are changing very quickly. Even even the twelve years or eleven years that I've been with CN, I see massive change in how we um, how we think about this. So so just to give you a very small example. Um, CNN has very good maternity and paternity leave policies. Uh, partly because it is proven Only that more than seven months for <laughs> a year, a year, and for men it's uh, the paternity is three months. Mm. So, because the research shows that if you have good paternity leave policies, gender pay gaps get smaller, because men also share the load of of um, childcare. So. That's you know, and, and that came from conversations about how we can have more mm. women in the newsroom. The fact that there aren't many in the Czech Republic, I, I don't understand this because there are great journal- mm. women journalists in the Czech Republic, they're I just agree. not getting
2: there. Uh, just talking about the presenters, I remember the BBC, where I worked for the BBC, there were constant discussions about the pay caps between the top, top presenters. Uh, always women were uh, several not several hundred thousand less paid annually than, than their main colleagues. How is it at the BBC, if you know, obviously?
1: Um, I don't know. So mm-hmm. the reason why we know this is because BBC, being public uh, broadcaster, they have to release the top paid people. I, I I don't have those numbers. I am confident that people who are in the same jobs are paid same salaries. Um, what happens in journalism generally, not just at CNN, is that there are roles that are more likely to be done by men and roles that are more likely to be done by women and oftentimes the, the roles traditionally done by men are better paid. So that's why I say we have work to do, um, but I think uh, in the grand scheme of things I am very happy with the way CNN is looking at this because there is work um, being done and there is work done.
2: Yeah.
1: Also maybe we should mention
2: that actually for my generation CNN was mostly a television uh, channel than a digital television channel but for current generation it's also a huge uh, internet presence uh, and you are part of the CNN Digital not That's not right, yes. website. Yeah. Did you ever have an ambition to cross the, the, the fence and to become a big Czech origin? Uh, um, so so I, I, have,
1: I have to say that uh, I've done some TV bits and pieces and I really did not enjoy it very much. I don't think I'm very good at it. Um, um, Based on your talk to me, <laughs> I, I don't have the. Ivan will be very very humble about this, but it's extremely. It, it, the skill of doing on air live reporting is, it, it is a real skill that you have to perfect, and I, I don't have it. Um, and I don't necessarily feel like I want to do it. I am a writer, I prefer writing, I've always done. I've always done writing and I've, I've, I enjoy writing, but I also know that, you, know, I ponder on every sentence and I rewrite it several times. You cannot do that in live reports, on television. And I, we talked about it before um, in the Green Room. I said, "I have this terrible, terrible thing about if it's quiet, I feel like I have to fill the space with something even if it's nonsense i don't want you know i can do it here when there is about 30 of you the idea that millions of people are watching me doing it no thank you well, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. so I, I don't think i will be a tv reporter anytime soon
2: okay uh, if we can come back for a, a, a while to your one of your last assignments in prague you mentioned you were in, in Prague at the time of the mass shooting incident. Actually, uh, in, your, your voice at least was on CNN Live at the time, so, so there was at least some of your present on, presence on, on, on television screen. Um, then if I remember well and if I understood it well, there was quite a lot of discussions in Prague about the ethics, journalistic ethics, how to cover a story like this whether to show the actual shooter on a television screen, whether to publish his photographs, uh, whether to uh, name the victims, or or at what stage we should name the victims. Tell me what's the CNN approach to these ethical issues and how you personally maybe uh, are dealing with them? Mm.
1: I think that's a really interesting question. And and unfortunately, CNN is very used to covering these events because they happen a lot in the U.S. Um, we don't have um, we don't have set rules on this. I think you have to um, you know sort of adapt your rules t- to each situation. So the the if it when it happened in the Czech Republic where it does never never happens, uh, we will treat it differently because. You know, it, it's a slightly different story than when it happens in the US where it's such a regular occurrence that there is almost a set um, timeline of, of, you know, it happens, then you know there's memorial, then there's politicians talking, all that. So with naming the suspect, um, we sometimes name them, sometimes don't. In this particular occasion we didn't name him because the Czech authorities asked us, us no, journalists not to. And if the authorities um, advise us not to name them, uh, unless there is a very very good journalistic reason to to overrule them, we wouldn't necessarily... Would we, we you feel personally being censored? No. <laughs> no. Because I, I knew we can publish it and we had a conversation because the name was out there um, and we sort of... the argument always is does the publishing of the name add any value journalistically to the story? I felt like in this case it didn't. <coughs> mm. um, so so we didn't. Um, and, and major reason was because the authorities asked us not to. Mm. When it comes to the victims, um, I think you always need to, um, it, it, the worst possible thing I think that can happen to anyone is finding out that something happened to their loved ones from the media. So our role would be, we make sure that we are not the ones breaking the news to the loved ones. So we tend to um, wait for authorities to release the names. In this case, it didn't happen, because the families didn't want it. I personally feel that in tragic events like this, the focus should be on the victims, and the victims that were named um, and where we knew something about that, we wanted to you know tell people about these these lovely people who, who mm. were so horrifically murdered. I don't know if you know the story, but but very large number of the victims were uh, students of uh, languages and deaf uh, and communication with the deaf. So you know, these are people who decide to dedicate their life to helping people who hard of uh, hearing or deaf so by definition these people were lovely lovely people you know they were scout girl and and volunteer firefighter and um, you know a a church going girl and, and it it's i feel like it would be great to be able to show the world how unfair this was and how great these people were if their families don't want to do that because it pains them more to do it, we shouldn't
2: do it. Yeah, maybe we just need, as journalists or as editors, some time to actually digest the whole event and come with it a bit later in the documentary or something. Absolutely, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, the, the emotions so, are running high. Yeah, yeah. Um, you also talked about visiting some of the real dangerous hotspots uh, of international conflicts in the last uh, two years. Uh, I remember from my years with the BBC, BBC News, we went through a uh, really tough uh, trainings and uh, health and safety arrangements before even almost leaving the BBC headquarters. BBC News, how is it? How is CNN?
1: It's, like, it's same. You cannot go unless you go through this hostile environment course, as we as we call it. I completely failed at it. <laughs> In what sense? In what sense? So, so it's they take it very holistically. So um, they there's all these that you sit in the classroom for for part of it, where you learn first aid um, and you know things about what kind of weapon does what kind of damage and how to seek uh, where to hide when there is a grenade, where there is a machine gun. You know all these very very practical things. And then they put you out in the woods. In my case, it was somewhere in Surrey, and you do practical exercises. So, first thing was um, they put us in a scenario where they sort of led us behind a corner, and there was a, a, a fake car crash with victims. The blood was, you know, squirting from them, and we were meant to give them first aid. And I rushed in and started using the tourniquet because we just had the lesson on the first aid. And I, uh, and I knew how to do it. And the, we, we did all of that and the instructor goes, stop. And he points me and he's like, you're dead. I'm like, what? It's like, you stepped on a landmine right here in the very first second of your engagement in this, in the lesson of that course being always be aware of your surrounding. Uh, so, so, you know, that was one failure. I, I just, I did not imagine um, ever needing this. Um, and this is, you know, going back to Ukraine, I didn't go to Ukraine because I wanted to go to war zone and be a war zone correspondent. I don't rec- I don't uh, think of myself as a war reporter. I went to Ukraine because I was interested in the Ukrainian story and in what was happening and suddenly there was a war around me. So I did have the training and I, I do now look around to see if there's any landmines. But, um, you know, it's... It, it, it it wasn't something that I was going for deliberately.
2: Sure. Going to places like Gaza or border between Israel and Gaza, going to Ukraine, was there or were there any moments where you really felt being intentional or were you scared, almost not able to do your, your job? Um o-
1: of course uh, it's scary when you know things are happening around you when when there is strikes and you have to run into the bunker or something like that. But at that moment you almost um, are sort of laser focused on what you are doing and working for CNN is incredible privilege because I have incredibly uh, efficient and great support system around me. So when we go into these places we always go with our security producers, experts who do risk assessments, who are there with us so that when something starts happening, I don't have to think about it because I just follow them. So they are, you know, sometimes as journalism, you will know this, we, we kind of get into this tunnel vision, following the story and not paying attention to um, to what's happening around us. Case in point was me trying to save that man's leg when there were landmines and I stepped in it, even though it was exercise. These people are in place so that we can do that, we can have that tunnel vision and follow the story in a safe way. And if we are in danger, they remove us or they advise us. They never tell us not to, they never tell us you can't do this. They work with us to figure out how we can do it. And if it's really a bad idea, they say, I think this is a really bad idea. And I trust them completely. I, I you know, trust them 100%. Uh,
2: just one last question. Fake news, false truths, half truths. How do you personally protect yourself and how CNN is protect, protecting the organization against you know, misreporting, misquoting at the age of social media? when um, Our audience is, ch- is quite often faster reporting something than us. Uh, yes,
1: yeah, so number one rule is don't rush. And if we have to wait and we won't be first reporting it, it's worth it. Just so we're not wrong, so so we'd rather be accurate than than fast. Um, and the BBC the rule number one. No, uh, yes, it's the it's number one role of journalism uh, because the, you make mistakes when you are in rush, when you're in adrenaline and all that. Uh, I think there's two things um, that I you know we need to distinguish. There is um, errors and and misquotings and things like that where. We make a mistake um, and we, we report something that's not true or turns. Our policy is always admit that and tell our readers, we made a mistake and this is the mistake and we corrected it. Sometimes we even say why we made the mistake and how it came to be. And that is because you know, our reputation and the trust is the only thing we have. Uh, so if we, if we mess it up, we have to be open with, with our readers. That's one thing, so everybody makes mistakes, we all make mistakes and we correct them. Then there is the fake news and the disinformation and there is so much of it and you you, know, you will know this, um, the, the Russian disinformation scene specifically towards Ukraine, news about Ukraine but, but also the Czech Republic. I mean, look at what happened yesterday in the Czech Senate the uh, Istanbul uh, Convention was rejected and one major reason for that was uh, disinformation and, and stuff that is not true floating around and influencing people who have power. So um, I think the way to combat this is just to really focus on reporting facts and maintain that that trust at whatever cost. So you know, we we have to if we make a mistake, we have to admit it, but but we try not to make mistakes, so that when there is a question of whether something is true or not, whether something is a misinformation, people know that they can turn to CNN and trust us.
0: How do you see the news reporting evolving maybe over the next 10 years with all the, the AI and the digital technology? Uh, what, what's ahead of us?
1: Uh, let me pull out my crystal ball. <laughs> How is it going to change? I think AI will probably start playing a big role. I don't know what that will look like. I think we're still figuring it out. Um, we definitely need to, um, we are, a, I would say, the way reporting as such has not changed. The, the basic skills of reporting, the basics of reporting facts, um, taking your time, going to places, speaking to people, and, and telling their stories that has not changed. What has changed is the formats that we use um, the way people consume news and we have to meet them where they are. So you know it's all very nice that that we want to you know print newspapers and have a daily news bulletin at 7 p.m that everybody we expect everybody to stop doing whatever they're doing and sit down and watch television but it's not if it's not happening, if people are not doing that we need to find where they are and wait, where they want to read the news and, and find them there. So, you know, digital is, is a is a great spot for that. Um, their people have their mobile phones constantly. Social media with all of their um, negatives and, and all of the controversies are a, a major way people um, Consume use, so you know, we, we have work to do there. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just going to be uh, more different formats, different platforms. We'll have to start thinking about where people go for the news and, and adopt.
0: Any advice or recommendation if someone would like to pursue? Uh professional career, being a journalist like you.
1: Really, don't give up. There's going to be so many people telling you that you can't do it, or it's stupid, or that journalism is dying and will be replaced by AI. If you want to do it, do it. Um, and I'm I'm the best example of, of, you know, I was rejected so many times. Like, I was taking, I was making little, you know, notes about all the rejections, and, and it didn't happen. So, just believe that it will and, 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 and will um, yeah. And pick the right parents.
2: Maybe, maybe I would add two points, just find a, a, an understanding and tolerant partner for your life if you are to journalist, otherwise you can get in trouble. <laughs> I, 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 I
1: wholeheartedly agree with this. My partner is a saint.
0: So you're lucky I'm all front and we are lucky that we had you here. So will you please join me in the round of applause for you very Insightful. Uh, uh, I guess also and uh, inspirational uh, comments and uh, discussions. Thank you all for joining us. I think we can carry on with more informally over the, the drinks and uh, next door. And also, if you're interested, you're certainly welcome to join us. I believe it's four weeks from now. We're going to continue with the series. Uh, our guest will be uh, Lady Milena Grenfell-Banes. Uh, some of you might recognize her name. Uh, she was one of the Nicholas Bitten uh, children, so to speak, uh, with the Kindred Transport coming to, to these countries many years ago. And uh, uh, I'm sure it's going to be a very fascinating evening as well. So, thank you.